0: It's time now for the PDX OWASP podcast, brought to you by the Open Web Application Security Project. The views of the guests do not necessarily represent the views of OWASP, their sponsors, and other stakeholders. Enjoy the show.
1: Our guest today is Terry Dunlap. Arrested at 17 while hacking with the Commodore 64, Terry went on to work for the U.S. National Security Agency to help track terrorists. He left the NSA in 2007 to bootstrap Tactical Network Solutions, an offensive-focused cyber company catering to the world's friendly foreign governments and militaries. Today, he's a co-founder of ReFirm Labs, an IoT-focused cybersecurity company. Thanks,
0: Terry, for joining us on the OWASP PDX podcast. Today, we're going to discuss everything about the Internet of Things, the acronym IoT, Terry, can you describe in detail what the Internet of Things is, does, and how vital it is in today's technological world?
2: It's chaos. It's riddled with holes. Hackers are attacking it, and I'd stay as far away from it as possible.
1: <laughs> Tell us how you really feel.
2: <laughs> um,
1: so you like it, right, Terry? Is yeah, that what you're I saying?
2: love it. I love it. <laughs> it's, I mean, coming from an offensive mindset, this is this is like a playground. This is this is unreal. Now, the Internet of Things, it depends on your perspective, how you define it. We deal primarily with embedded devices, basically firmware. So anything that has embedded firmware in it to us is an IoT device. Most people think IoT devices are things like, you know, your Alexa, uh, your smart refrigerator, your Nest thermostat, uh, your smartwatch or your Fitbit. But to me, even a Tesla is a IoT device because it's running hundreds of pieces of firmware. To us, that's, you know, we focus on firmware. So really, I think the definition is is open to interpretation because you know, back in the days when I worked for the U.S. National Security Agency, our focus was on, you know, exploiting embedded devices, anything with firmware. And those devices today have taken on the the name of, of IoT. Somebody coined it and it seems to have stuck. So to me, any network-connected device that has an embedded firmware image in my world is an IOT device. And some people may not think of switches and routers as IOT devices, but they're all run in some form of embedded firmware. So I personally would classify that as an IOT device. And as to the necessity of it, well, I mean, we're tethered to our phones, you know, where we like our smart watches and our smart devices and our smart homes. I mean, our Wi-Fi routers and security surveillance cameras, these are all running embedded firmware and, and, and can to some degree be classified as an IoT device. All the way down to just, you know, little sensors that actually monitor and track, you know, temperature changes, maybe in an industrial control system or something like that. So to me, in my world, those are all IoT devices. Now, you might... Think something different, Shane. So you tell me what an IoT device is.
0: One thing I've had a big concern about that I read recently was the uh, smart light bulbs. Gathering information, uh, that is something that, you know, was very
2: concerning to me.
0: I think a researcher just found it about a month ago. Well,
2: what, what concerns you the most? The fact that it's a smart light bulb doing this or the fact that all this information is being collected?
0: All this information is being collected
2: then why the hell are we using Google? That's true. Or any other search engine or even our operating systems are collecting this information and throwing it in some cloud somewhere. I don't know where all these clouds are, but they're somewhere with all our data in it that's being analyzed and segregated and parsed out to advertisers and everybody else. So, you know, having been a government employee where OPM got hacked years ago by the Chinese, and having a, a top secret security clearance, whoever stole it, whether it was the Chinese, the Russians, the North Koreans, or some script kitty in his basement, they have everything on me. They have 10 years worth of my, my, my addresses, every person that's related to me on my side and my parents' side, all my close friends and their contact information, including my fingerprints. So <laughs> there is to me, there is no more privacy. But that's probably a completely different podcast to get into. But I mean, this data is out there. It's it's being collected and analyzed and used probably against us in some way. But I mean, there's nothing more that I can do. I mean, Christ, my stuff's been compromised for a while now. And I don't know if there's really any privacy left to talk about
1: that's a good question because privacy once it's lost it's lost so but there's still people out there saying well i have nothing to hide right this is a a classic old argument but maybe tell them especially with all this information coming from all these different directions these different signals why should they be concerned
2: well they should be concerned because you know you gotta understand how it's going to be used against you i mean if it's if, if you're okay In its simplest form, with all this information being used to serve you up more relevant ads or to make some type of recommendation to get you to buy something. And if you're cool with that, then that's fine. What I would argue, and I don't want to get too political here, is what if somebody actually wanted to overthrow the government? Okay, you know, start a revolution. I mean, how you couldn't even begin to talk about something like that online. I mean, you would have to go back to the days where you're actually passing pieces of paper back and forth and you got to do it without any electronic devices on you. Otherwise you'll be tracked that way as well. You have to be totally electronically cleaned and do all your communications in person. If something as sensitive as, you know, some type of political revolution is something that you want to be part of because the government is tracking everything. They will come down and they will come down hard on you if they think you're a threat. And of course, they would lump that under, you know, the Terrorism Act and call you a terrorist. That'd be like calling the founding fathers today terrorists for trying to overthrow the government. So it depends on, you know, what you think is is most valuable. The fact that they're using this information to track and locate you and to, to sell you stuff, if you're cool with that, that's fine. But to say that you have nothing to hide, that may be true. But if you have something sensitive that you want to discuss, you've got to know, or at least you should know today, that it's being collected, monitored and analyzed somewhere.
1: Oregon, and I think California has a similar law, but just recently, I think early this year, possibly late last year, they came out with an IOT law, things like adding security measures into it. Kind of taking a step back, you mentioned government on one side, could government and particularly in laws be used to help protect us as well on that side, using legislation similar to something like GDPR where privacy laws are more coherent, at least in Europe.
2: We believe that that's the only way manufacturers are going to take this seriously. I mean, we we are in the business of selling a solution to help identify these types of security threats that are in firmware, particularly at the point as the firmware is being developed just before it's getting ready to go to production. We have a way to actually look at that compiled firmware image to see if there aren't, you know, any hard coded backdoors or accidental engineering test accounts that should have been removed or expired SSL certs or even manufacturers' private crypto keys. You'd be shocked at how many companies' private crypto keys we find baked in the firmware images that shouldn't be there. So when we're trying to sell our wares to manufacturers, and these are some manufacturers that we would all recognize the names. They're like, my customers aren't demanding this, so I'm not going to buy it. From my perspective, from somebody who's on the offensive side of the ball for so long, knowing what can be done and what we've done to foreign countries uh, and their leaders, I'm just flabbergasted that companies don't care. And the only way I think they're going to pay attention, unfortunately, is that the government get involved, create some type of legislation that actually holds them financially responsible. I think there was a report out the Solarium Commission. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys heard about that, but there was, there was a, a recommendation that was in that report that said, you know, IoT device manufacturers should be held financially liable if a, you know, attack takes place on a consumer device and there are damages or, you know, personally identifiable information is is stolen. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I think that's the only time manufacturers are actually going to put money on the line and take this seriously. Now, if you do a little research... For with the Federal Trade Commission, is it yeah the FTC? Mm-hmm. I mean, they've already had cases, class action lawsuits against the likes of Trendnet, D-Link, Asus, and others because their their Wi-Fi devices, their routers, have been hacked in the past and leaked personal information that was stolen. And these guys are then subjected to not only stiff monetary fines. Then there's required to do third-party security auditing of all their new products for like the next 20 years. And I don't think companies are going to do this voluntarily unless it hits them in the pocketbook somehow, whether it's from consumers not buying their stuff because you know somehow they find out it's not secure or it doesn't carry some type of seal of approval, which we haven't seen yet, or or they become victims and class action lawsuits and take place. So yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I think government will have to be involved and fines will have to be levied and maybe maybe companies will pay attention then.
0: Terry, can you give us a little bit of your background in government?
2: Sure. I started at the uh, NSA, U.S. National Security Agency, back in uh, 2002. So just as the global war on terror was, was ramping up, I was brought in to uh, help develop uh, exploits, for foreign targets, primarily terrorists who utilized embedded devices and what we would do would, would primarily help special forces that were going overseas to to actually track down some of these guys to help track them better so we were able to to develop capabilities that once we actually got on these devices basically act like beacon packets for for the military to actually track these guys down so it was an exciting time at least for the people in in, in the group that I worked in because you know the the special ops guys would come to to the office and say hey we're depl- in 30 or 60 days and we need a capability that does XYZ against this target. Can you develop it? And it's like, wow, okay, well, let's see if we can find the firmware from the manufacturer on, online and see what kind of vulnerabilities the firmware contains. And maybe we can actually weaponize one of those exploits. So that's what we did. We did that till about 2007. And you know, I, I thought all of the intelligence agencies were, were on the same team and we were fighting the same enemy, but as, as our small group at the NSA became successful, word spread in the intelligence community and other groups like the CIA and others would come and learn about what we had developed and would like to borrow the capabilities. But management's like, nope, we're not giving it to those cowboys across the river at the CIA because they don't know how to handle their stuff properly and they'll, they'll end up burning the capability. And I was like, wow, I can't believe this. This is this is the government that I'm working for? So. Fortunately, I went to the, uh, that unit commander that we supported, uh, him and his guys, and I said, hey, look, I'm looking to possibly leave the agency and start a company that creates offensive cyber capabilities for you and guys across the river at the CIA and domestically here, the FBI and the U.S. Marshals. I mean, if I develop something, is that something you guys would be interested in taking a look at and buying? Long story short, he said, yeah, I put in my two weeks. I created my first government contracting company, Tactical Network Solutions. Back in 2007, took me nine months to uh, weaponize a vulnerability in universal plug and play that allowed me to manipulate the firewall without the user's knowledge and sold that to that military unit. And that was enough to get me on the path to start developing zero day exploits for vulnerabilities that we found. And so the company grew over many, many years. And we focused on finding vulnerabilities in firmware devices and, and weaponizing those. And it's a, if, if you guys have ever looked at firmware, if anybody in the audience has ever looked at firmware, the first step is to use Binwalk, which is an open source tool our company created to unpack that firmware image. You know it's a laborious, time-consuming process. So we ended up automating this over many, many years to the point where we could take a compiled firmware image off a vendor website in about 30 minutes, tell us the highest probability of vulnerabilities that could lead to exploitation that could be weaponized. So that actually helped our production process. But in 2017, we were actually showcasing this platform we had built to uh, some members of the intelligence community. It was kind of a little conference here in Maryland. And some investors happened to see it. and said, have you ever thought about using this tool for defensive purposes? And I had to laugh because it's like, why would I, I want to defend this crap? I mean, <laughs> so we're, you know, this we're out there fighting the good fight, going after the bad guys and the criminals and the terrorists. And I only have to be right one time. If I'm on the other side of the ball, you know how many times I have to be right every time. And I don't like those odds. But money talks. And these guys were willing to put up you know, a couple million dollars to fund a brand new company that would utilize this once offensive capability to actually start helping manufacturers defend against the very same things that we would go after against our targets overseas. And so we ended up spinning that technology out of tactical network solutions in 2017, created this new company, Refirm Labs, has no connection to the government whatsoever. And me and my co-founder brought the core team over And so now we're selling this as a defensive development tool for people that make embedded firmware for IoT devices. And even to to users who are bringing in these products into their environment to vet and validate them, to make sure that they're clean before they even put them on their network. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it.
1: So Terry, you brought something up because in OWASP, we have a lot of younger folks that are just getting into security. And I typically ask the first question, they're not sure which domain insecurity that they want to do. And I ask, do you want to go on the offensive side or do you want to go on the defensive side? You're experiencing both. What advice would you have to them if they're not sure? It sounds like what you're saying is defensive is probably harder, but is it good to have a little bit of both?
2: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> My younger brother who likes to say You're criminal minded (laughs) because when you're you're looking at this stuff, you have to look at it from an attacker. It's a different mindset. It's a different perspective. And I I think this whole thing started when I was 17. Uh, I was, you know, finding ways to unlock the security of the five and a half inch floppies that had computer games for the Commodore 64. And I I started, you know, at, I guess you could call it reverse engineering, looking at the byte code, trying to figure out what bytes to flip to allow me to copy these games. Games and then distribute them to all my friends. And then I realized, well, hell, I can probably make money if I sell them to my friends. Why give them away? So I started doing stuff like that and hacking the phone system, you know, blue boxing, black boxing, red boxing, all that kind of stuff. And it was just it's just a mindset. I've always been looking at ways to break things or to break into things or to show things, ah, that that ain't as secure as you think it is. And having that kind of mindset and experience and then coming to the defensive side, I think it gives us a little leverage, a little edge over people that have just maybe gone through a traditional you know security upbringing, if you will, learning how to defend, defend, defend and not letting them loose and actually trying to break into places. I did actually spend a little time with Deloitte and Touche back in the day, being a penetration tester when pen testing was starting to take off in the early 90s. So that was fun to actually get paid to do the stuff that I actually got arrested for when I was 17. Um, so yeah, that was that was thrilling to know that that was a profession that you could go in and actually break into you know, First Energy or Fifth Third Bank or Procter & Gamble or State Farm and, and be able to show... It, basically, you're showing off is what it was. That's the way I felt. It. I'm showing off. wow, oh, look, that's secure. You know, I was able to get this. I was able to spoof this email. You click this link, and I pwned you, man. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's it's such a thrill to me. It's it's like an adrenaline rush when you're on the offensive side and and you're doing something naughty that you're not supposed to be doing. It's so cool. <laughs> so yeah, I'd say if you have a chance to go down the offensive route, get some offensive training, actually play around with you know, in a lab environment or some of these virtual environments where you can break into stuff and experience that. I think it gives you a pretty different perspective when you start to defend stuff. So I'd say start on the offensive side then work your way over to the defensive side. That's my opinion.
1: So Terry, elections are coming up, and I've been reading a lot of great research about electronic voting versus good old-fashioned paper system. I want to hear what you think of that first. Is paper better or electronic?
2: I think paper's better in my perspective. Look, if any time you introduce an electronic component into anything, there's, to me, there's a higher probability that something can go wrong. So, you know, it just, I understand the convenience factor of having all the voting electronic. However, looking at it from, you know, an offensive perspective, it's like, wow, there's, there's gotta be a ways to get in there and monkey with that stuff and, and, and throw a monkey wrench into it and cause all kinds of chaos. Cause that's that's the that's what I would do if I was allowed to. <laughs> I'd try and find ways to steal voter registration databases or to make changes, you know, make live people dead and dead people alive and cause all kinds of chaos. And, you know, can I intercept the traffic that goes from the polling place to the board of elections? And can I filter that traffic and maybe flip a bit here and there and see what I can do? Can I insert myself as a man in the middle and do some type of man in the middle attack? I mean, that, that, that's how I look at it. You, you really can't do that with, with paper ballots you know i i'm the type of guy and you can ask my wife when i go out to buy a vehicle i want as few electronics in it as possible like when i when i bought a jeep recently they tried to sell me on you know a high end jeep wrangler i said i don't want this i just all i want is an air conditioner that's the only thing I want. I'll roll down the windows myself. I will unlock the door myself with my key. I don't need an electronic start. I can, I'm can, i able to put the key into the column and turn it. I don't need all these whiz-bang uh, electronic features because these are just other components that can go bad. So I would say paper ballots are better and more secure than all this electronic stuff.
1: The paper is the audit. So another way of looking at it, you go to a grocery store and you got your point of sale there and you put your card in and that transaction, it's all nice. It's convenient. But at the end... It asks you if you want a receipt. That's what you get. You get that piece of paper. That's your proof you were there, you know, physically. Nothing else indicates otherwise. And so they were, yeah, they were saying there is some convenience about the actual voting system itself. But at the end of the day, make sure you get your receipt when you vote. <laughs> Something of that nature.
2: Yeah, I, I, exactly. I, I I don't know if there's ever been a cost benefit analysis run between a state or some counties or jurisdictions running all-electronic ballot process versus paper ballot process. Sure, it's a little more manual labor involved probably to do the manual stuff. But, you know, it's... I don't know. I I would think maybe the cost might be a draw. Maybe the manual stuff might be a little cheaper. It's 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 hard to say. I haven't seen any any studies done on that, but I don't know. Knowing what I know on systems and firmware and uh, you know some of the stuff we used to do to our adversaries overseas, I would I am not an advocate of of electronic voting at all.
0: Yeah, some great great thoughts on that. Is there any Internet of Things coming up on the horizon that are going to be cutting edge? that you know of that you've been working on
2: well one thing where you know i'm always looking at things through the lens of an attacker so one of the things that uh you know i'm looking forward to to get my hands on and play with is is 5g so i know 5g's been rolling out in certain cities and overseas it's it's already you know making inroads but to me 5g looks like a whole new battle space for attackers and nation state actors to to get involved with. I haven't seen a lot of studies out that have thoroughly vetted the pros and cons of the security of some of the 5G networks. There's a lab in Virginia that's going to be getting some 5G gear, and hopefully we're going to be going in there to do some testing to see how secure some of this stuff is. Of course, our testing is going to take place deep down at the firmware level, where you know, most nation state attackers and, and, you know, sophisticated cyber criminals are going to attack. But it, it'll be interesting to see over the coming years, the types of security vulnerabilities that are reve- revealed with the rollout of, of 5G. I think to me, that's the most interesting thing coming out. So it's not particularly an internet of thing, but it is a way for all of these IoT devices to actually connect more seamlessly and to bring more online and to really take advantage of what IoT was envisioned to be able to, all these little tiny devices being able to share all this data instantaneously with all the other IoT devices that are out there. I just like being at the network layer and being able to get in there and and monkey around with the network traffic and see what kind of chaos I can cause. That's... to me that's it's it's a whole new playground for people like me to to play with.
1: Hey Terry, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Would you be willing to come back in the future?
2: Well, sure, if people want to hear me pontificate <laughs> and hear my rants and raves, I'd be happy to come back.
1: We want pontificators, <laughs> especially over here on the on the west side. Yeah, and if you're ever over here, we would definitely invite you over for a beer or coffee, whatever your choice in the Portland area. Nothing happening in this city, recently. And <laughs> But thank you so much. Do you have anything upcoming to promote or anything you want to talk about?
2: I mean, the only thing, you know, I, I would probably plug is that, you know, if, if, if you are an ODM or OEM out there or you're a firmware developer or, you know, an IoT device manufacturer, check out my newest company, refirmlabs.com. We specialize in securing firmware and making sure it's secure before it goes to market and you'd be surprised at some of the stuff that your supply chain's sneaking in there that you might not know about. Thank you so much, Terry. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it, Shane. Yeah, you too. Have a good one, John.
0: To hear this podcast again, visit anywhere a podcast is played. For more information, go to OWASP.org forward slash www forward slash chapter forward slash Portland.